I'm Ken Hemmings, and he is Chris Lang, and welcome to another of these regular property briefings. Again, a warm welcome to you, Chris. Thanks. It's good to be back with you. It seems one of the questions that comes up from time to time relates to the entity uh, an investor should use when purchasing a commercial property. I realise this is probably something that needs to be fully explored with your accountant or solicitor, I mean, relating to personal circumstances. However, could you perhaps give us a quick layman's view of some of the practical considerations? Sure, Ken. And I'm glad you said layman's view because I'm certainly not giving you the highly technical legal view, and that's something that everyone must go and talk to their accountants and or their their legal people about. But in essence, the reason you pick a particular entity, and we'll come to the specific ones in a moment, is you're trying to achieve overall flexibility in your dealings, not only now, but in the foreseeable future. And Therefore, you need to allow for the ability of one or more individuals, if particularly if you've got family members or friends or other colleagues, to sell out when they want to. You also need to deal with things like future tax changes and try and anticipate those. But then you have to deal with events as best you can, like marriage breakdowns, death of one or more individuals, the passing on of investments to future generations and probably underlying it all is the ability to maximise the use of your superannuation where possible and also claim the greatest tax benefits legitimately on the way through. So given the background you just provided, what are the main options our listeners have available to them? Okay. Basically, there are three different alternatives that you can use. The first one is a company, and that can be a simple proprietary limited company. It might be a public company limited by guarantee, which is effectively private company because it's not listed, but they're slightly more onerous requirements, or it might end up ultimately being a publicly listed company. That's probably unusual and, and not not likely for an individual, but the company structure has certain benefits and we'll come to those in a moment. The second one favourite alternative is a fixed trust or commonly referred to as a unit trust and that does not have all the same reporting and structural and ASIC requirement compliance as a company does. So in some respects, some people prefer that. The third one is a partnership or a joint venture. And this is just a simple partnership between two or more people. And again, we'll go into some of the pluses and minuses of the various alternatives. Now, there are certain hybrid versions of that. I'm not really competent to discuss them. It really very much depends upon your personal circumstances and as I said and you alluded to, it really is something you you should explore in detail with your accounting and legal people because 
your personal circumstances will no doubt dictate which of the three or combination of the three ought be undertaken as far as what you want to achieve now and looking forward as best you can. So I think that probably there are three that we ought to focus on today. Do you think you could give us a few pros and cons for each of these alternatives? Let's now look then at, at the company to start with. A company is a separate legal entity. It has its own life and existence and that provides a certain amount of protection because it means that the company's, if the company's business fails, the personal assets of the shareholders are protected. Now, a company can employ you as a taxpayer and provide you with a salary and also provide salary packaging. By employing the taxpayer, the company can also provide employer-sponsored superannuation and obtain the maximum deductions compared to individuals and partnerships. So the company also makes it easy to admit or retire partners by simply buying or selling the shares or alternatively by just issuing new shares. Currently it has a 30% tax rate, although the government is talking or threatening to reduce that. We'll need to see the next budget to work out where that sits and, and when. The franked dividends can be passed through to shareholders who can claim a refund of any excess uh, imputation credits. And also the profits can be retained and taxed in the company at the 30% rate when personal services income is not involved. And also you can make a deduction for interest on borrowings to pay for things like tax or refinancing shareholders' loans or equity. So there are a number of advantages there. Look, they're in no particular order, and I'm sure you expert consultants can probably add to that. But, I mean, I'm looking at the practical pluses there. Now, if we look at the disadvantage or disadvantages, the a company can be expensive to establish and costly to run. The 50% GST discount, which is available to individuals and in, with partnerships, and trust is not available. You cannot distribute losses to individuals. There are rather complex rules regarding the carry forward of losses. The income and capital cannot be distributed in a very flexible way, and the directors can be held personally liable for the company's debts in certain circumstances. So while you might be able to protect your assets, you as a director may have personal liabilities. And if you want to wind the company up, well then it can prove to be costly and sometimes time-consuming to do that. So there are plus and minuses, but overall the company at least achieves the separation of and protection of your personal assets and that is probably its biggest plus. So what about if you were thinking of using a trust? So if you're thinking of a trust, again, it provides you with the asset protection you're looking for. 
there's far less regulation involved in setting up and administering a unit trust. The trust can employ the principals and provide for salary packaging just as you do with a company. The trust can also, in employing the principals, provide employer-sponsored superannuation. There is no need to lodge returns and other forms with ASIC, whereas there is with a company. You have to lodge certain paperwork there at the end of the year, and that, as I said, is one of the disadvantages. The 50% GST deduction or discount is available, and that's probably important because you have that as an individual. When you incorporate as a company, you forfeit that, but it still remains if you have a unit trust. The trust is not taxed itself as a separate entity. The funds flow through the trust to the individuals, and therefore the tax is paid at that point. So you calculate whatever expenditure comes off the the income, but it's the net profit that flows through the trust to the individuals. It's far less costly and time-consuming to wind up than a company, and like a company, it's also easy to admit new partners or shareholders, although they're called unit holders, by issuing new units, and it doesn't have any GST consequences. So looking at the disadvantages... You cannot transfer losses. You can't distribute losses to beneficiaries. The individual trustees can be personally liable for the debts of the trust. And so, therefore, what most people do is not have individual trustees. They have a corporate trustee. It's just a bare company. It doesn't trade. It simply acts as the trustee and you can change the directors of the trustee itself, but then there is the liability that we're talking about there runs with the company, not with the individuals. So if you choose to accumulate income within the tax, it would be taxed at the top marginal rate, which is currently 48.5%, whereas the company has only charged 30% tax rate. And... Also, there, certainly in Victoria, and I suspect in other states, provisions relating to land tax. Land tax is one of those things that the more properties you own, the more land tax you pay on an aggregate basis. But there are certain provisions within the unit trusts that you can make a declaration and instead of the aggregation in the normal sense, there can be an imputation effectively go through. Again, we're not going to get into that level of detail here. That's a a discussion with a a tax lawyer to explain the the various implications. But they will guide you at, at the point. And if you say that you plan to acquire a number of properties, they may suggest you have separate unit trusts to keep the entities or the properties in separate ownerships. There is a beneficial owner test But again, as I said, there is a a way to step around that. And finally, when it comes to using a partnership, what are some of the pluses and minuses there? Well, partnerships are far less costly to establish and to run than either a company or a trust. They certainly provide certain flexibility within that. 
they allow for income splitting between the partners and, and sometimes husbands and wives form a partnership there, one earning more than the other. It just seems to work. The partners can also obtain the 50% GST discount, which is available to individuals and is also still available for a unit trust, but not for a company. The partnership losses can be distributed to the partners to be offset against other income. That's not possible with a company or a trust, but it is possible with a partnership. It does provide flexibility and asset protection, but the way around that is that you actually have a unit trust as the partners. Now, that might sound complicated, and I talked about a bit of hybrid, but sometimes as partners, you might have your own unit trusts, but you want to come together as partners in in a particular venture. And so the partnership relates to that venture or acquisition, but it's your unit trusts that are the partners. And as I said, the nuances of that and the and the benefits are better explained by an expert, not by me. But what I'm trying to explain to you is that there is certain flexibility that can be introduced by combining the three of these types of entities. With a partnership, there can be independent parties can be easily admitted as, as partners, much like you can with the unit trust and the companies. However, the disadvantages, well, the partners are jointly and severally liable. Now, that can present big issues. And we cover this, I think, partly with syndicates, and we might go into a bit more in a later podcast. The reason why we have non-recourse finance, so that there is no joint and several liability amongst the syndicate members. But with a partnership, you're not just limited to the liability of your share of the partnership. You are also responsible. If the other partner can't pay his or her share, you then become liable for that. Generally, there's no asset protection, unlike the company or the unit trust. Income cannot be accumulated and must be assessed at the partner's tax rates. A company, you can do it and pay tax at 30%. If you don't want to distribute in your trust, you don't have to, but you will pay tax at 48.5%. But with a partnership, you you cannot accumulate. You must pass it through, whether you want to or not, to the individual partners. Now, partners can't be employed by the partnership for salary packaging purposes, and also partners are unable to claim a deduction for interest on borrowings to pay income tax, whereas individuals and other business entities can. So there are a couple of disadvantages that you you need to consider if you you plan to, to operate under a partnership. So on balance, which entity do most of your clients tend to use? Well, on balance, I've got to say most of them would be using a unit trust in some form or another. When I act for clients, after we've negotiated the commercial terms of the deal, I'll take them into the legal consultant that I use as part of my team 
and I always ask that their tax partner sit in for the first 10 or 15 minutes of the discussion. And the reason for that is that I want the client to outline what their aspirations are now and what they see going forward or foresee going forward, what they want to achieve as far as asset planning, asset protection, generational changes, things like that, so that the tax partner will then advise them the appropriate vehicle in which to buy the property because until they sign the contract and settle on it, you're able to make that choice. Now, you can sign a contract and have and or nominee and provided you're substituting an entity of which effectively you have the same beneficial interest, there is no double stamp duty issue. But once settlement takes place, changing the vehicle or changing the entity that owns the property can become very complex and expensive. So it's important that that be sorted out. It may be an existing unit trust or company that you have and that might be deemed to be appropriate. In most cases, the suggestion is that you set up a special purpose vehicle, which means a standalone unit trust, so that anything that happens in relation to that property does not contaminate or detrimentally affect any other assets that you have. So it's, it's quarantined within that vehicle. And so it's important that that is established at the very outset so that going forward you don't have to be looking over your shoulder wondering whether you've made the right choice. You've already analysed it, taken advice and can move forward with confidence. I can appreciate this may not be the most lively topic, but nonetheless, it is obviously crucial for every investor to make the right choice from the outset. So thank you for providing our listeners with enough information to at least be in a position to ask their advisors the right questions. Ken, I just trust it's been helpful.